Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. As Bo mentioned, today's Palm Sunday, so first day of the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, we'll be looking at something today, your Bible probably calls it the triumphal entry or the triumphant entry. A little background on that. So this is the Passover festival, one of the three major religious holidays where Jewish people who lived outside of Jerusalem would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. You could, the Passover had to be celebrated within the walls of the city. And so Jews would come back and, and do that. So you've got thousands of extra people in Jerusalem. And what they're celebrating, they're looking back to the Exodus, you remember that story, the 10 plagues, Moses, crossing of the Red Sea. That's what they're thinking about. That first deliverance where God, through Moses, delivered them, delivered their ancestors from slavery. Now, they're not in slavery now, the Jews of Jesus' day aren't, but they, they're living under a pagan government, the Roman Empire, and they don't love it. They're not fully free. And so even as they're looking back to the first Passover, they're thinking about and hoping for a new one. Just like they're looking back at Moses, they're hoping and thinking about a new Messiah, someone who would deliver them from their current predicament. So that's kind of what's going on. There's a lot of excitement and anticipation in the air. Again, they're, they're, they're looking back and going, look what God did. He took us when we were we were slaves, and he led us out from the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He can do that again. He did that through one man, through Moses, and he's going to send a Messiah, and he's going to do that again. So that's what's going on as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he enters in a very calculated way. And I don't mean that negatively, but it's very intentional and deliberate on his part, the way he chooses to enter Jerusalem. So we'll uh, just read Matthew's version. This story's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all, few details are different, same basic gist. And so we're going to read Matthew's version. As they, so they is Jesus, his disciples, and there's a larger crowd with him. We don't know how many, but there's some people who've been traveling with him for weeks, if not for months. You see it more clearly in Luke than you do in Matthew. In Luke 9, I think it's 50, Jesus says he sets his face resolutely to go towards Jerusalem, and there's a group that's traveling with him during that journey. So that's who they is. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there, and with her colt by, and with her, colt by her, excuse me, untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
So deliberate on Jesus' part to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's fulfilling a Messianic prophecy. A Messianic prophecy is an Old Testament scripture that points to either who the Messiah would be or what the Messiah would do. In this case, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. Jesus knows that scripture and he sets out to deliberately fulfill it. We've seen, as, as we've walked through the different gospels, Jesus walks everywhere. He even walks on water. He never rides anything. We never see it. We see him in a boat once, I think. If he's on land, he's walking. He's not tired. You're talking about one mile. That's how much he's got left in his journey. But rather than walking that mile, he chooses to ride into Jerusalem and not on any animal, but on a donkey. It's, again, a very deliberate fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. Many of them he had no control over. He couldn't control who his parents were, who his grandparents were, who his great-great-grandparents were. He couldn't control where he was born or how he would die. Those things happened to him. This is something that he could control. And he, again, very deliberately says, I'm gonna fulfill that prophecy. And whether you think it's from supernatural knowledge that he knew that donkey was available or whether you think, well, he just arranged that with the owners of the donkey, it, it really doesn't matter because what it shows is intention on his part. It's subtle, but even the act of procuring the donkey is a sign that he's communicating that he's the king. Kings could do that kind of thing. If the king, if we lived under a monarchy and the, you had a truck and the king needed to move his couch, then he could take your truck to move his couch. That's, that's what kings could do. They were allowed, we would say commandeer, I think the technical word is impress, to impress an animal for their own use if it was within their kingdom, particularly for travel. That was not an unusual thing to do. So even Jesus Again, sending the disciples to get this donkey, that's an expression of the fact that he's the king. Otherwise, that's, that's called stealing. It's not, it's not his donkey, but if, he, if he's the king, then it's all his. Again, that's subtle, but it's what he is communicating. And again, this deliberate fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the way that he enters into the city. He's communicating to everybody, I'm the king, subtle, but intentional and deliberate. Now there's two crowds and this can be a bit confusing for us. There's two crowds. There's a group that's traveling with Jesus that we just talked about. So they've heard him teach about the kingdom of God. They've seen him work miracles. And so when they see what Jesus is doing, they seem to, to pick up on the symbolism of that. They seem to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. For them, it's a credible message. Jesus communicating that he's the king, they're saying, well, yeah, he might be. If I got on a donkey, nobody cares. If Peter gets on a donkey, nobody cares. James, John, nobody cares. It's not credible. I, I'm not fulfilling any, or if I'm trying to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, they would say, well, that's sweet. You don't have all this other stuff that would indicate that you're actually the Messiah. But Jesus does. He's been, again, teaching about the kingdom and kingdoms need a king. And he's been demonstrating his power and his authority by healing the sick, driving out demons and raising people from the dead. And so when he rides in on a donkey, people are putting two, to two, two and two together and saying, hey, maybe there's something to this. 
And their response looks like how you would respond to a king entering your city. Like we would say they're rolling out the red carpet. That's what the, the cloaks and the branches are. That's a way of honoring and welcoming a king who's returning after a victorious battle. And so again, their response indicates so there's, there's credibility to what Jesus is saying. Now, as Bo mentioned earlier, they don't fully understand. They don't understand what kind of king Jesus is but they understand something is special and different about him. So then they enter Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem would have had walls around it and there's a gate. So everybody's kind of entering through the same place. And when they enter, the people who are already there, those thousands of pilgrims, and many of them may not have known Jesus at all. They may have, maybe they've heard his name, maybe not. And they're saying, who is this? Matthew says the city was stirred, and that's actually not a strong enough word. That word is actually used for the, the effects of an earthquake. They're, they're shaken, the whole city is. They're seeing all of this hoopla, this ruckus, this fanfare with Jesus entering, and they're going, well, who is that? Who is that? And the crowd that's with Jesus says, this is Jesus, the, the, Jesus the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. Now that word prophet could just mean a messenger sent by God, which is still really special. A messenger sent by God to communicate to his people, to lead his people, to call his people back to himself. Or it could mean more. And I'm actually wondering, it's hard to know, this is a crowd, everybody has their own mind, but thinking of the crowd collectively, if what's in their mind is actually a, a, a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon to the Israelites before he dies and they enter the promised land. And in part of that sermon in chapter 18, he says, listen, after me, God's gonna raise up another prophet like me and y'all need to listen to him. And over time, that, that little P prophet became a capital P prophet. It's not just Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. The Jews started looking for someone like Moses who would be, have that same function as a deliverer as the Messiah, and that became a messianic scripture as well. And I'm wondering, at least to some degree, if that's what's in the mind of the crowd when they say, Jesus the prophet, if they're thinking, yes, he's a man of God, we know that, he teaches God's word, we know that, he works these miracles, we know that, and we're also wondering if he's more than that. And maybe even leaning in that direction, and again, they're, the way they're treating him, the cloaks on the ground, the branches on the ground saying things like son of David, that's a royal title. Luke says they actually explicitly call him the king. They seem to me to be leaning a little bit more towards he's the Messiah. Again, not knowing fully what that means. That's Matthew 21. This is Psalm 24. You can flip there if you want or it'll be on the screen behind me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For God founded the earth on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory, the Lord almighty? He is the king of glory. 
Now, Matthew 21 is not a fulfillment of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 uh, is written by David, and it's a psalm that's it's a processional liturgy. It would have been used at different times, most likely remembering when David brought the ark to Jerusalem for the first time. So the ark is symbolic of God's presence. And so David bringing the ark to Jerusalem, that's a, a picture of God coming to that city. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. So it's, 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 the, the psalm is celebrating the entrance of God into the city, Jerusalem. But I do, to me, and, and maybe you do as well, I see echoes of Psalm 24 in Matthew 21. It begins by saying the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus saying that donkey's in my kingdom and so I can use it. The whole earth is the kingdom of God. It's all his. The first thing Jesus does when he enters Jerusalem, we didn't have time to look at this, is he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. He says, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers, which sounds like that middle section of Psalm 24. Who can approach the throne of God, those who have clean hands, who outwardly are righteous and pure hearts, those whose attitudes and motivations are righteous as well. Jesus, again, he's cleansing the temple of that unrighteousness. And then particularly, the question in Matthew 21, who is this? The question in Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? Again, the idea of Jerusalem as a walled city, the gates are welcoming in the Lord. They're welcoming in the presence of of God, just like the people are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. The thing I want us to focus on is, is this contrast or paradox, whatever you want to call it, the mystery that Jesus is gentle and riding on a donkey, and Jesus is the King of glory, Lord Almighty, strong and mighty in battle. And he's both of those things. Your Bible in Matthew 21, mine says gentle, yours may say meek, or yours may say lowly. The word, it is meek. It's from that beatitude, blessed are the meek. It's the same word. Or Matthew 11, where Jesus talks about himself and he says, I'm gentle and lowly, same word. It's only used those three times. Jesus is, he's described as gentle or as meek. And that doesn't mean weak. What it is, it's someone who's not self-assertive, someone who doesn't fight for themselves, who's not aggressive, So that's what it's not, what is it? Someone who trusts God enough to allow God to do all of those things. That allows God to vindicate, that allows God to fight for. And we see that very clearly in Jesus's towards the end of his life. We see that at his arrest, we see it at his trial, we see it at his crucifixion. In all of those instances, he is being treated unfairly, he's been treated unjustly, he's suffering, but he's trusting his Father. He's not asserting himself. At one point, he says, I can call down 12 legions of angels, but he doesn't. He chooses to trust the plan of the Father. The Father will vindicate him, even though it's a path of suffering. That's what it is to be meek. Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey, which is a picture of humility and lowliness, not on a war horse. He's communicating something about what kind of king he is. Psalm 24 who is this king of glory? His name is Jesus. We know that. But we see another side of him, the Lord Almighty. 
That's one of the most uh, prevalent names for God in the Old Testament. Your Bible may say the Lord of hosts or the God of the angel armies. It's, it's, it's Jesus or it's the Lord as the commander of the armies of heaven. To be mighty and to be strong, that is to have the capacity, the capability, the ability to accomplish your will through an exertion of force. You know what it means to be strong. That's what David is saying. That's who God is. He's strong. He's mighty. He can get things done. The things that he wants to do, he is able to accomplish. That's what it is to be strong and to be mighty. And again, we, we hear those things and they kind of pull apart from one another. We wanna recognize Jesus holds them both together. So the main thing I want you hearing today as we enter into Holy Week is Jesus is not a victim, he's the victor. He wins by dying, but he chose to do that. He says, nobody takes my life from me. Sometimes during Holy Week, particularly on Good Friday, we almost feel sorry for Jesus. He's the king of glory on a cross. He's, that's still who he is. He's strong and mighty on a cross. He's mighty in battle on a cross. And so as you think and meditate and contemplate and pray and worship as you move through this Holy Week, Good Friday, and then Easter next weekend, that, that, that's really it for me to you is I want you to hold on to that. He's the humble king of glory. He's both. He's meek, he's gentle, he rides on a donkey. And he's the Lord Almighty. Strong and mighty in battle, he's both. He's not a victim, he's the victor. Nobody took his life from him. He laid it down in obedience to his father and in love for us. Keep that in mind. Now, just one thing, we follow Jesus is not just the humble king of glory. He's also our example. And so we follow him. And so for some of you, and this is not for everybody, but some of you find yourself in a situation where you, it would be helpful for you to embody these qualities. I would probably even say it's probably a, a morning for you to repent. And I don't mean that in a harsh way. It's an invitation to realign your thinking with his. Jesus is the humble king of glory, and so that means we follow a humble king of glory. That's how we're supposed to be as well. So what does it look like for us to be weak? That's not an American value, and if I can be sexist, it's certainly not a male American value. The idea of not asserting yourself, of not fighting for yourself, the idea of trusting God, particularly if that involves suffering, which it will, if that involves being treated unfairly, which it will, that's a very difficult thing to get our hearts and our minds around. Y'all probably heard that idea. There's a word picture, it's really old, that meekness is strength under power. It's a word used of horses. They have a lot of power, but they're under the control of their rider. So you can think of meekness that way with the Holy Spirit as the rider. I recognize there are circumstances that I'm not aware of that you may be in. I'm not saying you never get to speak up for yourself, and I'm not saying you never get to kind of assert your opinions. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying all of that is done under the lordship of Jesus. And all of those things are done out of an expression of faith in the Father. When he set the course for you, then you trust him to vindicate you, to fight for you, and to work it out. Recognizing, and this is just honest, that meekness will lead to suffering. It's going to you're going to be taken advantage of. And that's a difficult thing 
to get our hearts around. And again, different circumstances, that's gonna look differently. But in general, that's what we're talking about. Meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. So under the leading of the Holy Spirit, you're making a choice to say, I'm gonna allow the Lord to fight for me. You can think about the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what meekness looks like. Jesus, he's deeply impassioned in prayer, deeply troubled at what's in front of him. He's wrestling with God to the point of, of shedding blood and then ultimately he submits. This is what I want, but ultimately what you want. That's meekness. It's not passivity, but it is submission. And so I wanna encourage you in that some of you, and again, it's not everybody, but some of you may be in a situation right now where, what, where, where you're asserting yourself. Usually uh, we're tempted to do that in the areas where we care the most. Are you asserting yourself versus trusting him? And I would just, the Holy Spirit can convict you. I can't tell you whether you are or not. I'm not saying again that you don't have a voice. I'm just, this, it's just this idea of recognizing I'm not gonna assert, I'm not gonna fight, I'm gonna trust the Lord. Ask him. But again, meekness is not passivity, but the way that we do fight looks really different. It's spiritual. And that looks like Jesus in the wilderness. That's the end of 40 days he hadn't eaten. He's a man just like us, so he's weak, he's hungry, he's at a very vulnerable point, and the enemy tempts him. And there's that battle between Jesus and the devil around his identity as the son of God and about his path. What road is he gonna take in fulfilling his destiny, fulfilling this mission? Is he gonna follow the path of the father, which leads to suffering, or is he gonna kind of take matters into his own hands? And Jesus fights the enemy. It's a spiritual battle. He quotes the Bible back to him. That's, how, that's what battling looks like. You can read the second half of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. If you want a fuller explanation, what I would just say is for us, our fight is not against anybody else. We're not fighting with flesh and blood. We're fighting against spiritual forces and therefore our weapons are spiritual. It's prayer primarily and also the Bible. That's our, our, our sword. That's the, that's the weapon that we have. In prayer, we're inviting God to get involved in expressing our dependence upon him. The primary way the enemy attacks us is through lies and the Bible tells us the truth. Remember, you're seated in Christ in heavenly places and the devil is not strong enough to pull you out of that seat. So what he's trying to do is to get you to get up and walk away. He can't get you off the, he can't, he can't eject you from that place. But you can get up and move. That's why in Ephesians 6, four times it says stand. Just maintain your ground. You, you've already won in, in Jesus. You just maintain that ground, and you're gonna be fine. And what the devil tries to do is to get you to move off that spot. We've said this before. He doesn't have a pointy tail and a pitchfork. Nobody's fallen for that. He masquerades as an angel of light. His lies are 90% true. It's the 10% that kills us. You wouldn't believe something that was completely false. And so there's a, this recognition for us. It's through prayer and knowing the word. That's why we're reading through the Bible together this year, the whole Bible this year. We wanna know the truth and we want it to form and shape our hearts because the primary way the enemy is gonna attack all of us is through lies, false statements about God, about our reality and about ourselves. That's what he's gonna do. And again, they're gonna sound really good. They're gonna be mostly true because he's really good at what he does. 
He's been leading people astray for a really long time and he's good at it. That's not to scare you. It's just to say you've, you've been given what you need is this under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. He will guide you more and more into the truth of who Jesus is. And so we're meek. That doesn't mean passive. It doesn't. For us, the, the active part primarily looks like prayer because we're recognizing where the real battle is. Again, think of the wilderness and think of the Garden of Gethsemane, those two places where we see Jesus' meekness and we see him as the Lord Almighty. We see him fighting in both of those places. He's not fighting against anybody else. He's battling with the, with the devil. And so as we close this morning, those are the, the two things I want you to keep in mind. For everybody, you follow a humble king of glory. He's a victor, not a victim. And so as you worship this week, just keep, keep both of those in mind. Matthew 21 and Psalm 24. He's gentle and lowly and he's strong and he's mighty at the same time. And then for the handful of you who right now you're in a, in a spot or maybe you're being, at a minimum, you're being tempted to assert yourself, to step out from under the protection and the guidance of the Lord and kind of fight your way forward. I would encourage you to not do that, to, to, to resist that temptation if you've given into it, to repent. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that the meek will inherit the earth. And so if the choice is it's you can either receive what God wants to give you, the earth, or you can claw and scratch and fight for what you can get on your own, which of those do you think is better? You may not get this, the earth, until after you die, but after you die is a whole lot longer than while you live. You'll get more and better for longer if you receive an inheritance than you will if you claw and you fight and you scratch for whatever you can kind of existence you can eke out here. So I would encourage you, if that's you, and the Holy Spirit will convict you about that. If that's a, a place where you're struggling right now, if you're stepping out from under that kind of that idea of meekness, of trusting the Lord and, and being too assertive, fighting, grasping for what you feel like is yours. I'll give you an opportunity to repent from that. So Bo's gonna come back. I want us to just, I want us to pray. I'm gonna pray about a couple of things. We'll have ministry teams up here. We'll pray with you about whatever you have going on. Maybe uh, you, you, something that I shared stirs something in your heart and you wanna pray about. And again, I wanna be really careful. Some of you are in situations and, and maybe you're, I don't want you to confuse sharing your thoughts or your feelings. I think, you know, kind of the, the phrase for that we're using is finding your voice. That's not, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not being meek. And so again, you just, you need to ask the Lord about that. I can't necessarily tell you. You're the only one who knows what your motivation is. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you come and you move among us. I pray that you would lead us more deeply into the truth that we follow, that we worship the humble king of glory. And I pray that you would give us the grace to hold both of those truths in mind, that Jesus is both gentle and lowly and he rides on a donkey and he's strong and he's mighty and he rides a white horse. I pray this holy week for the men and the women, the students, the kids in this room, that we would see more clearly this one 
the king who died for us. You're just as much the king on Good Friday as you are on Easter Sunday. God, we wanna pray for our city. We wanna pray for people in our city who, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And you may just wanna think of somebody right now, a particular person. We pray this week, we pray for those Lazarus moments, you calling to people who are in the grave and them getting out and walking into life. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict of sin and of guilt and of righteousness, that you would lead people more deeply into the truth of who Jesus is, that they would repent of their sins and put their faith and their trust in him. We pray that you would rescue those who are in bondage to sin and Satan and death. We pray that your light would shine in the darkness. You have pushed back the kingdom of darkness and Jesus, that your kingdom of light would be established more fully in our community. We pray for the church, capital C, in our community, and that would be full and vibrant this week with life. We pray for the services that'll be going on all week, that they'd be full of, of life and of power and of love, that you would draw people to these places. Ultimately, I pray, Jesus, as the church, capital C, lifts you up this week, that you would draw people in our city to yourself. Would you do that, we pray. And God, I pray for those, maybe just a handful in here who are really wrestling in a difficult situation. They're being tempted to step out from under meekness. I pray for grace and for courage to trust you, to know what it is to be meek in that situation very practically what that looks like, what to say and what not to say, what to do and what not to do. I pray, God, that in the midst of that difficult situation that they would turn to you and, that be, and be completely honest, just like we see Jesus being in prayer. And that would be the place where they fight their battles. Through prayer, I pray any who are right now are being fed lies by the enemy and are beginning to move off of that solid ground of being with you in heavenly places? Would you show us? Would you convict us? Would you warn us? Would we repent? I pray that our hearts would be formed and shaped by the truth of the word. So would you come now and minister to each of us in the places that we most need you? In your name we pray. Amen. for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.